Where's Dr. Pipe? Oh, there he is. Dr. Pipe, uh, John, same book, chapter 15. Uh, I've been in discussions with men of the Bible, and some have the belief that John chapter 15, Jesus Christ being a vine, Father being a husbandman, that that verse is speaking of a man being able to lose his salvation in that verse, stating that the branch that is in me, that very verse, the branch is in me, but if it don't produce fruit, it will be cast away and burned. Is that talking about salvation? If it is not, can you distinguish? My, oh, my. That's a really good question. Well said. Good point. The branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Okay, here's the way I go about answering a question like that. Um, It's a picture, a vine, a branch, a farmer, and you got to be so careful with pictures, all right? What aspects of an analogy or a comparison is meant to be taken precisely and what aspect isn't? And so I, I move out, stay in the same book, but I move out and say, okay, Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospel of John, you got anything else to say to me about perseverance, eternal security, sticking in? And, and you, you maybe know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to chapter 10 and read these verses. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never, never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, my conclusion from there and numerous other places, I'll just give you one other place. For me, the most important passage in the Bible, well, there are several. Romans 8, chapter, 8th chapter, verse 30. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What does that mean? That means when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm declared righteous. He says, everyone who's declared righteous will be glorified. Nobody drops out. He preserves me. And here's one more. 1 John 2.19, same author, different book. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. Because if they had been of us, they would not have gone out. So they, they, when they went out, they showed that they weren't of us. Now, here's the hard part. You come back to chapter 15 and say, okay, those who don't bear fruit are cut off, and they were in the vine. Now, if in the vine means completely united to Jesus in terms of new birth, new birth we got a contradiction. <clears throat> I don't think there are any contradictions in the Bible. Therefore, I'm going to say there is a kind of in Jesus that's not all the way in. I'll give you an example. I don't think I'm making this up. What about the parable of the four soils? One falls on the path, birds pluck it up. Next one falls on rocky soil, 
Sun comes, it, it springs up with joy. Is it in? Ooh. Sun comes out, burns it up, no fruit. Next one goes on the, in the uh, thorns, and there's periodic, I mean, a brief flourishing, yeah, and the thorns choke it out. Only one soil is good, and it bears fruit. I think there are people, quote, in the vine that aren't holy in the vine. They aren't born again in the vine. They aren't really drawing sap from the vine. They're like artificial. There's some of you in this room like that, probably. This room is like a corporate vine. You came here and you're in and you're getting the message and and you're getting the influence and it's not doing anything. It's not bearing any fruit. You're going to go out here just as unborn again as you came in? Maybe. So my answer, right or wrong, my answer is, I believe that John teaches eternal security. I believe that John teaches the perseverance of the saints. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. The people in John 15, I think, who got broken off never were wholly, completely in. And you just have to be careful with with, uh, pictures and parables and images in the New Testament. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Uh, Piper, uh, you basically somewhat answered the question I was going to ask concerning the uh, parable of the sower and the seed. But maybe uh, you might can give a little bit more response to when Mark recorded the parable and in verse 13 of the fourth chapter, he said, if you do not you understand this parable, How then shall you understand all parables? My question is, what is Jesus saying if, you know, when he asks his disciples, if you don't understand this parable, what is the point he's making? I understand about the soil, which you already commented on, but what's the point here of why he's asking, why he's making those statements concerning the parable if they don't understand it? How can they understand another one? I really don't know for sure why he would say understanding this parable seems to be the key to understanding all the parables. If you don't get this one, how are you going to get the rest of them? Could it be that this parable makes plain that when the Word of God is preached, it, it only bears fruit in a certain number, and therefore... Uh, the, the Word of God is not going to be totally compelling to everybody that hears it. And that may be a prerequisite for how all the other parables function because those parables have that effect. He says in another place, I'm telling you parables so that not everybody will understand because some are under judgment and they're going to be stumbling over these parables. But I, I'm just thinking out loud with you, really. I, I, I don't know the answer to why that parable would be the key. And boy, if you knew, come up and tell me afterwards, some of you. So I'm sorry I can't do better on that one. I'm not sure. Next question. Right here. All right, how you doing? Um, I was reading Genesis, um, chapter 5, verse 4, and it explains that... Um, how long Adam lived? He lived um, 
800 years, a total of 930. I was wondering why they haven't um, explained on the numbers that Eve lived, what year she died. I'm going to need some help because I'm not getting everything you're saying. What book are we in, chapter 5? Genesis. Genesis. Genesis chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. Uh, oh, the, the uh, genealogies. So now what? Chapter 5, verse 4. Here we go. Speaks about um, the days of Adam. Yes, sir. After he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Okay, um, I was wondering why they haven't spoke of Eve, um, the amount of years she lived. Why don't my ears are not good enough to get it. Why don't explain why, how long Eve lived? Oh, why? Why it doesn't mention Eve? Yes, sir. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> get into a habit here, but we—it's it, not. I mean, there there is a way to answer the question, but it's only a half an answer. The, the answer is. This is a very patriarchal culture that traces the genealogies through the men. I mean, it does all the way through. It, it does, the, the fathers are, are representative. And I, I don't think that's an accident. I think Adam was created first. He was the one who named Eve. He was responsible for as the head of the family, Eve. And so men are to be, in a unique way, leaders and heads of their families. And so the the... Line is just traced through through the men, uh, but ultimately, why that is? That's God's that's God's business. You got a microphone problem back there. Here we go. All right. Okay, while that's being fixed, we'll go here again. Dr. Piper, what would be, considering your message from John 6, what would be a word to a believer who sees Jesus or considers Jesus to be precious only if he can guarantee or give the hope of physical deliverance from prison? So what, what would this message say to a person who's, who's believed? Yes, sir. That's what Jesus... Oh, you believe on him only if he can give that? Right. How to say it without swearing. He's been badly taught. Um, there are many preachers of a name-it-and-claim-it sort Faith preachers, word of faith, they, they go by different names, and um, they believe you shouldn't be sick, and uh, if any bad thing happens to you, it's the devil that's doing it, and it's because of your unbelief. So the root problem with that is that it's a failure to understand the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God in and through suffering. Let me give you just one passage of Scripture that's very precious to me and I'm sure to many of you. Romans 8, 35 goes like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now here, here they come. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution 
or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, we are being killed all day long. And then he says, no, we are, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not out of all those things, we are more than conquerors. So your lot right now under the justice of the penal code is to be here. If God wants to work some kind of legal miracle, he can do it. He's not committed to doing that out of love for you. Your being here may be the very way he loves you. The very way he loves you. And it may be a curse on people outside that they have so much prosperity and freedom. Satan has two ways to destroy your faith. One, pain. Two, Pleasure. He can kill you either way. He can make you so painful you curse him. Or so pleasurable you forget him. I think pleasure kills more people in this world way more than pain. Way more. Have you ever heard anybody say... I got to know Jesus more deeply in the bright sunny days than I did any other day. You never heard anybody say that. What you hear every day of your life almost is, when the lights went out in my life, I found Jesus. when, When things got hard in my life, Jesus showed up. So I just don't buy the prosperity thing. I I, I don't buy that you have to be well. You don't have to be out of prison. You don't have to get a good job. You don't have to get a good wife. None of these prosperous things are the sure sign of God's blessing. Blessing comes in forms that you never dreamed. And if you're a child of God, I'll tell you what form it comes in. Every form. All things work together for good for those who love God according to his purpose. So you keep loving God and you'll know that everything is working. Everything's working. Dr. Pike, this is a marriage question. Good. Genesis. I believe in it. (laughs) Genesis 2 and 24 talks about how man and woman become one flesh. Yeah. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and 16 tells you that he who is joined to a harlot, they also become one flesh. Mm. It's been a controversy that Paul was saying that any woman that you sleep with, you marry her, according to that scripture. Yeah, that's good. That's a very, very good question. I don't think that's true, but let me, let me just, that's a really good question, and, I'm, and you're shrewd to make the observation. So he's, he's pointing out that uh, man shall leave his mother and father, and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And then Paul, in order to persuade you not to sleep around with prostitutes, says that you become one spirit with her, or you become one flesh with her. Marriage is more than sex. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. That's covenant language. A marriage is two things. An oath, I will be your husband and you will be my wife 
Till death do us part. That's covenant. And then you consummate it that night. That's a good idea, I think, anyway. And the consummation is the putting flesh on the covenant oneness. So you become one flesh. So to separate that one fleshness out from the covenant, Paul's saying, don't do that. You're not made that way. Women are, are ruined through that. Men, they just kind of jump from bed to bed. It's much more devastating for women. It's devastating for men too. So I, I think the fact that they overlap Genesis 2.24 and 1 Corinthians 6 overlap that much doesn't mean that both are marriage. Marriage is more than sleeping together. So if a man, say, had 16 harlots before he got saved, never made any covenant with any of them, and came to me broken, repentant, and forgiven by the blood of Jesus ready to marry a Christian woman, I'd do the, med, I'd do the wedding. If he, if he had six wives in a row and came for me to marry his seventh, I wouldn't do it. Okay. Dr. Pike, in this community here, we preach against a person suicide. And when you see a person that killed themselves, and was saved, they get to the other side compared to a sinner killing themselves. Can you clarify that for me, please, sir? Yeah, good. I'm glad you asked the question. He's saying, I, I made the observation earlier that I do believe it's possible for a Christian, genuinely born again, to be so depressed that they take their lives and are still in heaven. That's, that's what I believe. I've done three of those funerals in my ministry. Um, the one I will do the Friday after Thanksgiving will not be that way. And I don't know yet what I'm going to say. This is going to be very difficult. I don't know what I'm going to say because I've got 50 unbelievers in front of me and two believers and a dead person probably in hell in the coffin in front of me. This is not, not easy. But to answer your question about why I think a believer can get there is this. We are not saved, number one, by our works. We're not saved by not killing. And you're not lost because you killed somebody. People are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and they're lost by not believing in Jesus Christ. Now, you can lead a life that is so sin-soaked, you show you don't belong to Jesus. But the last deed of your life is not that decisive demonstration any more than the next to the last one. Let me give you an illustration. This, This is what helped me. Suppose my wife and I, get into a really ugly argument. I've never hit my wife and never intend to, but we've had some really painful, you don't understand. (laughs) And suppose it's all my fault and I'm just too proud to admit it 
and I'd say something really ugly to her, slam the door, get in the car, step on the thing, and smash my car into a telephone pole and die. That's the same thing that happens to a person, I think, that is so depressed for a season, just a short season, they got this, whatever it is in their brain, they're depressed, and they end their lives. I just killed myself because of anger. I was angry. I wouldn't have died if I weren't sinning. I sinned myself into the grave when I hit that telephone pole going 60 miles an hour. And would I be lost? I don't think so. I don't go in and out of salvation every time I get mad at my wife. The last thing you do in your life is not the decisive thing. Now, I say this with some hesitation because my guess is the temptation to suicide in this place is higher than elsewhere. And if you hear me saying, not a problem, feel free, you're not hearing me. It's a sin. It's very dangerous because it might signify I've never known him. I never know him. I just, I I gave up on him a long time ago. I haven't looked to him. I don't trust him for my future. I've quit relying on him and I'm out of here and you may wake up in hell, not in heaven. So be careful. Don't hear me saying suicide is not a big deal. It's It's murder and you don't want the last deed of your life to be murder. You want the last deed of your life to be love. Dr. Piper. As a Reformed theologian, when you emphasize the sovereignty of God, how do you keep out of the trap of fatalism, especially in your preaching, your practice, and your prayer? How do I, as a Reformed theologian, avoid fatalism? Let's see if we can put a definition on fatalism. Fatalism, I take, would mean, um, que sera, sera, if God wills everything, then what will be will be and uh, do what you want to do or no point in praying, no point in evangelizing. You can't have any influence on the future or whatever. Is that roughly what fatalism would mean to you or do you want to define it more closely? Um, Not so much as the looseness of it, but the logic when we emphasize the sovereignty of God is easy when you're following the five points of Calvin to go into that, that, well, what's going to be is going to be. We have the language of it when we discuss the predestination, when we discussed earlier, you quoted the scripture. They weren't of us, so they, they went out from us. So it would have never made any difference how much preaching they heard, how much witnessing. That doesn't resolve, that doesn't absolve us from our responsibility. But needless to say, we, we come into this idea of what's going to be is what's going to be. How do you stay out of okay. that? The the way I stay out of that is by being more biblical than Reformed. That is, I don't draw inferences from, from theological, logical suppositions or assumptions. I go to my Bible and I look out, I look for verses and sentences and paragraphs that tell me the implications of God's sovereignty. They tell me. I don't think it up. Like if you tell me, well, if God predestines everybody, there's no point in praying. Or if God predestines, there's no point in evangelizing. I say, well, you can be that logical if you want. I'm being biblical. 
God is sovereign. God does predestine. And it doesn't mean don't pray. It doesn't mean don't evangelize. And here, here are a few key verses. Philippians 2. You know where I'm going? 12 and 13. Just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that sounds like I got a lot of responsibility, and I do. And then it gives the ground clause, for God is the one who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So you kind of say, which is it? Am I supposed to work it out, or is he working in? And the answer is, because he's working in, I can work it out. So when, when I, if, I, if I say to my daughter, uh, you got to clean your room, and she says, well, if it's predestined, it'll get clean. I say to her, you work out your salvation this afternoon. Because God will enable you to do what I'm calling you, he's calling you to do. Another one would be uh, Hebrews 13, 20 where he, he, he blesses them and says that God will work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. So the, the biblical, I mean, the short answer is we avoid um, logical mistakes, whether it's Reformed theology or any other kind, by just letting the Bible constantly interpret the Bible. Just constantly be biblical, be biblical, be biblical. And you don't, you don't need to run, like, like you learn a little piece of Reformed theology, close your Bible and start being logical. Well, you're not going to be logical if you do that. You're going to be human sinful logical. You learn a little piece of Reformed theology, then you read another part of the Bible, another part of the Bible, another part of the Bible, and it shapes and forms the whole thing. And then you wind up being whole and, and biblical. You believe everything that's in the Bible. So you believe these texts. God is not willing that any should perish. God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. You believe that backs? And you go here, you believe uh, that he predestined from before the foundation of the world those who should give praise to his glory. And as many as were appointed unto eternal life, they're the ones who believed. The reason you do not believe is because you're not of my sheep. These are all Calvinistic verses, and these are all so-called Arminian verses over here. And I believe them all. And I think Reformed theology is the best way to believe them all. It's the one that makes sense out of more verses. But I'm, a, I'm mainly a verse guy. And that, that's my answer. I'm a verse guy. Give me a verse, you know. Okay. Well, that's my friend Alex, and he basically asked you the same question I was going to ask you, but I had about four questions, so I'll ask you some more questions. Number one, dealing with your study habits. And the second question, as far as a modern-day theologian, who are you reading like in the... Erickson or Grudem or Burkhoff, who would you suggest? Yeah. Who am I reading and, and study habits? Um, well, let me think right now. My reading is very spotty. I go in spurts because I have little time sometimes and more time other times. I don't think you can go wrong today reading J.I. Packer. I don't think you'll go wrong reading R.C. Sproul. I don't think you'll go wrong reading C.J. Mahaney on another lighter note. Um, Sinclair Ferguson is solid as a rock. Um, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I just had dinner with Wayne last night. 
we've, we've been friends for 35 years. He's the kind of guy who, when his daughter-in-law was killed at age 23 in my town, he called me to go to the morgue to be with his son. That's the kind of relationship we, we have. Uh, Wayne Wayne's a, shoots a straight arrow theologically. Um, oh, my, and there's so more. You, you can tell all the ones I just referred to are Reformed um, because I, I think that is the more biblical view. Um, what I would say as far as study goes is um, be sure that you combine a personal, warm, tender, sweet season with God in his word every day that is a little different than rigorous, academic, hard-nosed, tough, commentary-type study. Now, not everybody would give you that advice. John Salehammer, my good friend, wouldn't. He says, I don't make that distinction. I said, well, I do. It's like if I get a love letter from my wife, 1967, I'm working as a water safety instructor in South Carolina. I'd fallen head over heels in love with Noel Henry. I'd get these envelopes at the lunch break that smelled really good. She had put something on it. And it would take my appetite away, meaning for real regular food, I wanted this food. So I would go out in the woods, I'd sit down, I would slowly open it, and I'd pull it out, and I'd just feel it. I'd just feel it, and I'd open it, and I'd read it very slowly. Now, that's what I mean by meditative, contemplative, sweet, warm time with God in the Bible. But suppose she used a word I couldn't understand. Or I couldn't quite make it out because the writing was not clear. At that point, I got to do some study. <laughs> I, I want the moment, what did she say here? Did she say handsome or weird? You know, that's not a very good example. What's a word that sounds like, looks like handsome is bad? It doesn't matter. You get the idea. So I want to know, does she, does she love, does she mean this? So, so go study your Bible uh, in a season that is read, read through text. Make sure you understand all the words and all the phrases and look them up, do the hard work, and combine those two. That, that's just one possible thing to say. As, as far as schedule, my, my life is so uh, different from day to day and week to week. I'll do all my sermon preparation on Friday, for example. I, uh, Friday, early morning until I'm done at night, that's when my sermons get get written. Now, I work <coughs> preparing what I wrote on Saturday, preach it Saturday night, Sunday morning twice, and uh, take Monday off, Tuesday staff day, Wednesday and Thursday classes and administrative stuff and some free study time, and now I'm back to Friday again. So it looks pretty much like that. Okay, we're going to transition. I'm sorry to just cut you off, but we could go all night till early in the morning. <laughs> Dr. Piper, do you have any closing comments or conclusions that you'd like to share? Well, I'm, in, I'm deeply thankful for the questions. I, I, uh, I love what God's doing here in terms of the, uh, the model that you manifestly are to your brothers across the country in the kind of pattern of life God has enabled you to set here. And I do give God the glory for that. And I I want you to feel um, 
I mean, th- think of it this way. You, you, you can't all, I mean, there are a few that go out for missionaries from here. You can't all just get up and go, but you're being watched all over the country, probably the world. There's a calling upon Angola. There's a calling upon you in order to demonstrate some irrefutable effects of the gospel. And make it that. Make it that. I was talking with uh, Warden Kane. I was talking with him about the relationship between the gospel and morality. The world can only explain you one way. Morality, morality, morality. We're going to do some morality stuff here. Well, you know better. This is gospel, gospel, gospel. This is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the fruit is change. Change in behavior. Your mouth changes. Your hands change. Things change. But the change of the mouth and the change of the hands isn't where it starts. That's spillover. That's fruit. The the change is right in here, knowing him, loving him, trusting him, treasuring him. So accept the calling that's on this place for the sake of of the nation. Thank you. That's all.